As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Africa is the poorest continent in the world, and as economic centres in Asia fully develop, it's unfortunately only falling further behind. Today, the majority of people in the world living on less than $1 a day live in Africa, and the income gap between a large share of African nations and developed nations has grown to a factor of 40 or 50. Now, addressing an entire continent as a single economic case study is normally a silly endeavour. There are 54 countries in Africa, each with their own economic systems, governments, challenges and opportunities. Asking sweeping questions about the economy of all of them at the same time would be like assuming that the USA and Ecuador had the same economic dynamics. But when it comes to poverty, this is a relatively universal problem across all of Africa. Yes, there are outliers like the Seychelles, Mauritius and even Botswana, but most of their economic output is unstable at best and based on dubious tax systems. Even then, the nation with the highest GDP per capita on the continent would be lower middle income in Europe or North America. This makes the question of why is Africa poor even more important to answer. The fact that most countries across the continent are undeveloped led a team of economists from MIT to look for underlying reasons that go deeper than individual national issues to see if there are common barriers to economic development in Africa that are not present in other regions around the world. Finding and understanding these issues, if they exist, has the potential to guide economic policy and aid efforts to address the root of the problem rather than band-aiding over the symptoms. So. What were the foundational issues, if any, that the MIT researchers found when trying to answer this question? How can these issues be fixed? And finally, is there any reason for optimism on what is otherwise a fairly disheartening problem? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Economic success tends to lead to more economic success, and economic challenges unfortunately do the same. Today, countries across Africa deal with a combination of problems that the world is perhaps overly familiar with. 
Political instability, corruption, and the destruction of capital makes it riskier for industries to get established on the continent, which means that people don't have access to economically valuable opportunities, which causes impoverished populations, which causes even more political instability. There are modern problems on top of this as well. As the world has opened up to international trade and workers, it's become harder for African industries to compete and easier for talented African workers to leave to find better opportunities in richer countries. These issues are well documented and well understood, but they are symptoms of other underlying problems. So why has Africa so universally continued to struggle with this vicious cycle where countries in every other continent around the world haven't had the same issues or have been able to address them? A good start would be geography. Almost like a real-time strategy game, where countries exist on a map does have an impact on their early game development. Land is one of the factors of production alongside labour and capital, but in a way it's almost the foundational factor of production because even in the earliest civilizations spanning back thousands of years, good land could support more people. The more people that were supported by the land, the more they could specialise in technical areas of a society outside of just hunting, gathering or farming for food to survive. Now obviously Africa is massive, but land in the economic sense also extends to other aspects of geography as well, like how fertile that land is, access to drinking water, and in the late game access to raw materials and trade routes. Any time economists look at the poverty experienced in Africa, they almost without fail mention the abundance of natural resources that exist across the continent. From precious metals, fossil fuels, diamonds, and even rare earths that have become vital to the electrification of the global economy. The trillions of dollars buried in the continent's soil makes the poverty all the more heartbreaking because while the land is so abundant in this respect, that same land has worked against the people that inhabit it for thousands of years and have put them in a position where today, when those resources are at their most valuable, they are ill-equipped to take advantage of them. The most obvious place to start is simply how isolated most of the continent has been. The Sahara Desert divides the continent east to west and for most of human history has effectively acted as a large ocean, making most of the land to the south an island physically separated from a lot of the societal developments that took place along the trading routes between Europe, the Middle East and Asia. Even today, the countries in Northern Africa along the Mediterranean are more integrated into global affairs and are generally more developed than countries in the south and centre of the continent. The Sahara Desert is such an economically significant geographic feature that economists will often look at Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa as two completely separate entities. Both have their problems, but Sub-Saharan Africa's tends to be long-standing. Being isolated from even early global trade and the spread of ideas and technology put the south of the continent behind their northern neighbours, and it would also later open them up to exploitation from technologically superior regions that would establish connections to the continent in ways that were not mutually beneficial, to put it mildly. Beyond that, the land itself is not particularly fertile. Making the transition to productive agriculture is one of the most significant things humanity has ever done, but it was obviously easier to take that step where the land was more naturally fertile. The Sahara Desert clearly isn't ideal for farming, but even the most seemingly fertile lands in the centre of the continent have poor soil quality that is prone to rapid erosion unless it's carefully managed by even the most advanced modern farming techniques. An ancient civilization would have found it very hard to develop agriculture given these factors, and there was also no real incentive to. In lush areas where agriculture would have been possible, it was just easier to forage or hunt for food rather than invest the effort into developing farms. Sub-Saharan Africa is also an environment that is very inhospitable to structured development. The most fertile areas are rife with tropical diseases, insects and wildlife that generally favour human groups that remain spread out and mobile. Anthropologists compare this with theories they have around other early developments that revolve around something they call the trap of sedentism. This is where human groups would find an area so lush with life and abundant in resources that were important to early humans like fresh water, wood and the lack of predators that they would just become sedentary in that area for generations until they depleted everything they could hunt or gather. At that point, agriculture becomes the only option if the group has lost their nomadic ways. 
These gardens of Eden, as anthropologists call it, didn't really exist in Africa, so people had to stay in smaller groups, and they had to keep moving. Today this has resulted in a continent that has many different ethnic groups that speak hundreds of languages and have very different cultural norms. Even though the continent is divided amongst a lot of different countries, those countries themselves are often individually divided between many different groups. The large number of haphazardly drawn borders also causes other economic problems too. Yes, this is in large part still thanks to the shadow left by colonialism, but we still need to get to that. As it relates to just using the land as a factor of production for economic development, this dense cobweb of borders also means that many countries are cut off from the outside world because they don't have access to oceans for international trade. Transport infrastructure for trade is very minimal, and what does exist is either far from fully developed or are leftover rail tracks from colonial empires that are falling into disrepair and were only set up in the first place with the intention of exploiting resources rather than building an independent economy. The connections between countries are often at best dirt roads, and even those that are lucky enough to be directly on the ocean for a chance at getting involved in global trade still have other major geographic barriers. Most of the African coast, especially in the west, is raised and completely impractical to develop major shipping ports around. So before humans even existed, Africa was far from an ideal spawn location for mid to late game economic developments. These challenges also influence the other factors of production, including one that we rarely mention on this channel. Macroeconomists frequently talk about the way that land, labour and capital interact to influence an economy. In the case of Africa, it had land that was less than ideal for farming, trade and industry, which meant it had a smaller, more splintered population, labour, which meant that they were less concentrated in centres of commerce, which meant that instead of developing and sharing technologies and infrastructure, capital, they focused more on just surviving. But there was also another element, and that was entrepreneurship. Now when economists talk about entrepreneurship as a factor of production, they're not just talking about people who go out and start a business. They're more referring to people, or even institutions, that can coordinate the other factors of production, land, labour and capital, into actually doing something useful. It should be noted that a lot of economists often just bundle this together with labour, because labour also considers not just how many people are working in an economy, but what their skills are as well. A more skilled workforce should be able to produce more economic output. Given that entrepreneurship is arguably just another skill, explains why these two are often merged together. But the economic case study of Africa may be one of the clearest examples of why this is important enough to be considered as its own separate element. Now most of this is based on the work of Darren Asimoglu and James A. Robinson from MIT in their publication simply titled Why is Africa Poor? We were lucky enough to speak directly with Professor Asimoglu, who on top of publishing this paper also wrote the legendary book Why Nations Fail, all while being one of the most prolific academic researchers in the history of economics. Needless to say, it was good to get his insights on such a complex issue. Can you understand Ukraine today without its geography? No. Its entire history, especially recently, is because of the place that it is, in, you know, next to Russia. So that's geography. Uh, you cannot understand Saudi Arabia without its geography, meaning its endowments, oil. If Saudi Arabia didn't have oil, it would be a very different place today. So there are geographic factors that matter. But the question to which James Robinson and I gave a categorical answer, categorical no, is, is geography the main factor that explains the large gaps in income per capita and in prosperity around the world? And the answer to that is no. Institutions are overwhelmingly more important. You know, you are absolutely right. Sub-Saharan Africa is really a jarring case of poverty, failure to develop economically, failure to, to build industry and prosperity. Again, even though these challenges exist, it's important to address the underlying cause of things like the slow adoption of technology. 
Asimoglu and Robinson in their research looked back to various groups around the continent and individual motivations for why they did or did not adopt certain technologies, even when they were made available to them. Even really simple technologies like a wheel weren't widely adopted. The cheap transportation that something this simple enables means that it becomes easier and easier for societies to develop outside of small village groups because resources can be traded between different areas, allowing people to specialise. If something like food, tools or building materials need to be transported by head portage, where people just put heavy things directly on top of their head, then that's way less efficient than even a basic handcart. At that point it just becomes easier for societal groups to be self-sufficient because it's so hard to do trade. Now this wasn't unique to Africa. Indigenous Australians were also largely separated from the early exchange of technologies, and they too remained as mostly self-sufficient groups of hunters and gatherers until western colonies were established there. If that's all there was to this story then that would explain why Africa was historically behind the empires of the north, but it wouldn't explain why they remained behind. What Asimoglu and Robinson found interesting was that even after wheels became common knowledge on the continent, the study groups still preferred to do things by hand, and there was no clear reason why, until they looked at the institutions ruling over these areas. By the time western technology made it to Africa, regions such as the Congo were loosely run by kings that would rule by decree with little to no oversight. They would raise revenues through arbitrary taxes and take things by force where they saw fit. This pushed groups that wanted to avoid the rule of these unchecked leaders further away from the basic roads that existed in the region, so instead of developing a culture of trade and interdependence, the tyrannical ruling institutions encouraged exactly the opposite. Fractured, self-sufficient groups have carried through to the modern day where even within the many borders of Africa there are often dozens of different cultural groups within a country vying for political representation and power. In this kind of environment it's easy for bad leaders to establish themselves in positions of power by appeasing to their group and managing the country in such a way that it comes at the expense of everybody else, which means even a few hundred years later it's risky for people to rely on the economy to provide them what they need. It might be much less efficient, but it's much safer for them to just look after themselves. It also wasn't worth putting too much effort into making even simple stuff like a handcart when it could just be seized by some absolute monarch at their whim. Now of course this did not happen in a vacuum, and it's impossible to look at the modern day economic struggles of Africa without exploring conquest and colonialism. All of the challenges that the continent of Africa had with divided populations, inhospitable environments and poor economic management was made significantly worse by the Atlantic slave trade and later colonial empires. The basic economics of the slave trade were unfortunately almost brutally simple, and preyed on a lot of the foundational weaknesses that we've been exploring so far. Colonial empires had established plantations in the newly discovered Americas, but unfortunately for them, unlike a lot of other colonies in the East Indies, the native population was dying out too quickly to be put to work growing exotic spices. So the Europeans needed to import a new labour force, and well they weren't going to do it themselves, so they turned to Africa. A lot of the unchecked African rulers at the time already used slave labour themselves and they were happy to participate in this horrifying industry in exchange for European technologies, particularly firearms. Guns were technically advanced tools, but unlike a lot of other technology, they didn't have the same problem with just being claimed because they were both property and a tool to enforce property rights all in one. So powerful groups could get tools to become even more powerful and profit from capturing their rivals to be sent overseas. The Europeans took this slave labour and put it to use in their new colonies to produce exotic goods to sell in Europe, and they used the proceeds to buy even more guns to sell back to Africa in exchange for more slave labour. The reason they didn't just set up colonies in Africa itself was because at this time African groups after a long history of fighting amongst themselves were pretty powerful adversaries, especially on their home turf that was full of tropical diseases, dangerous animals and below average soil anyway. It was just easier to sail across the Atlantic Ocean, which highlights just how tough Africa was to settle. Of course this system didn't last forever. American colonies started claiming independence and the industrial revolution meant that western militaries grew far more powerful very quickly. 
In the 1600s with wooden sail ships and early firearms it just wouldn't have been economically viable to colonise Africa like European powers were doing with other regions around the world. But with modern armies, steamships and basic treatments for tropical diseases the large continent of Africa started to look very attractive as a colony especially since it was filled with resources that were suddenly very useful in the industrial era. This time period on the continent was truly horrific, to the point where we can't go into too much detail or this video will just get taken off YouTube. But from a purely macroeconomic perspective this laid the foundation for a lot of the government problems the continent still struggles with to this day. When colonial powers moved out of Africa they took with them their tools, ruling structures and industrial relations. Education on the continent was almost non-existent and now a lot of groups couldn't even go back to their traditional way of life. Violent power grabs happened across the continent and even if the leaders that seized power were completely benevolent they had no training on what goes into running an effective government. Now of course a lot of leaders across the continent have not been benevolent and instances of corruption, well they've been known to happen. At independence you know some of Africa had the beginnings of a bureaucratic system, a court system etc that Europeans had themselves had set up but those were mostly in the main population centers, in the main urban centers. They had not penetrated society, they had not become completely legitimized. In fact, Europeans often destroyed more legitimate indigenous institutions when they tried to build their own for reasons of control. For example, the British colonizing Nigeria. They tried to introduce their own ruling families in places like Sierra Leone as well. And when they left, the shell, the skeleton of institutions were not very useful for building new economic activities, but they were very amenable for a strong man to take them over and use them for extraction. The natural resources that should be Africa's golden ticket to economic prosperity have in many instances just been used by despotic leaders as their own personal piggy bank to secure their own power. Constant political upheaval and the continued rule of unchecked authorities means that the continent as a whole has taken a serious reputational hit to the point where any industry across Africa is inherently seen as more risky than a similar industry in another continent. This means Africa has struggled to get funding for even basic projects with huge potential upsides because it's just considered too risky. Now sometimes this reputation is earned. A few months ago we looked at the conflict unfolding in Niger and how it was halting the development of an oil pipeline, one of the easiest infrastructure projects to ever see a return on investment from, but even still in the geopolitically uncertain country it was just not worth the risk. Now fortunately while this situation almost seems hopeless there is room for optimism. A lot of the underlying issues with the failed development of solid institutions to manage economic development are starting to show positive signs of progress. Robinson and Asimoglu's paper was written more than 13 years ago now and a lot has changed since then. Botswana is one of the fastest growing countries over the last 60 years since its independence. And if you look at Botswana it has all of the problems that others attribute to Africa. It is a landlocked country. It is not an easy country to navigate because of its you know, richness of all sorts of uh, natural barriers to moving around and uh, other issues. It has diamonds which have been called a curse for other African countries. It also started its independence period dirt poor and without much road or any type of educated elite. But it built better institutions for a variety of reasons, we can get into them if you are interested, but it built better institutions, it created stable property rights, it created a democracy that has worked reasonably well over time, it 
never led to a system where the court system was biased towards one group versus another. It invested in people, in education, in public infrastructure. It managed the diamond wealth well, and it's achieved this relatively high level of income. But it will be a mixed bag and it will take some time. Interest rates across the world right now are high, which means international investors are even less attracted to places like Africa, since they can get good returns by just buying extremely safe investments. When cash is earning less than a percent, they might be a bit more motivated to look at Africa as an option again. The continent is also again embroiled in a number of very high profile conflicts, which is making even countries like China take a step back and see how this all plays out. Nobody can predict the future, least of all economists, but it also must be remembered that just 50 years ago, most of Asia was in the same economic situation as most of Africa today. 300 years ago, a blink of an eye in the grand scheme of human history, even the wealthiest western nations had a similar economic output to the continent today. One of the most poignant takeaways from Asimoglu and Robinson's research is that economic success tends to lead to more economic success. Most economies throughout history have been stagnant until they weren't. If Africa's time does come, it could be an economic success story the same as every other region that was plagued by problems until they made the first breakthrough. Our full interview with Professor Asimoglu is available to listen to ad-free on Spotify and every other popular music streaming platform. We briefly touched on the problem of modern day corruption in this video, but it's something that we covered extensively in our video on Eritrea, one of the clearest examples of a struggling African nation. You should be able to click to that video on your screen now. Thanks for watching mate. Bye.